All right, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll be picking up in verse 26 today. I will have scripture on the screens. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, we have some floating around here. And if you don't have one back at home, take that. That is yours. Merry Christmas early. All right, this is week three in our journey through the gospel according to Luke. And this is week one in the Advent season, as Pastor Ryan mentioned earlier. Advent means arrival or or, or coming. And so what we do with this season is we kind of set it apart to to slow down and not just celebrate Christmas the week before uh, or just the day of, but really take uh, four weeks, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to slow down and to focus in on uh, Christ. And we want to celebrate His coming And we also want to anticipate his coming as they did. They anticipated the coming of the Messiah. He's now come. He's here. He's among us. He's in us. But we now anticipate his second coming as well when he comes back for his bride, for his church. And so as we see the candles uh, grow lower and lower and lower, it it shows for us, it's a picture for us of the, the, the nearness of the second coming of Christ, that he will come again for his church on earth. So are you excited for the holiday season? Yeah, I, I definitely am. I, I love it. We plan to grab our tree either today or tomorrow. Our, our tradition is to grab the tree, decorate it together, blast the Christmas tunes, and uh, drink hot chocolate and hang out. And it's just a ton of fun. And my kids, I told them this morning, I think that's what we're going to do this afternoon. And they go, yes, they're so excited. And so I'm excited too, fist pumping all the way. Uh, but again, let's, let's leverage this season as a church for uh, a time of drawing near to Christ, drawing near to each other, and as I said before, engaging in his mission. People are sensitive and open to the, the truth of Jesus this time of year, and so let's use it uh, to that end. And, and I'm praying that today as we dig into the very beginnings of the Christmas story, that it would set the trajectory of this season for us as a church. And so uh, the book of Luke, uh, we've been here now for, for three weeks, and, and the book opens up, if you remember, by explaining a little bit about its origins, that we have this wealthy man, this powerful man, perhaps some kind of uh, political leader named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. He's been taught a little bit about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, people are saying that he's God. People are saying that he's resurrected from the dead. He, he, he's God uh, who came in the form of man and, and dwelt among among us. He was sinless. He performed all these amazing miracles. He was a phenomenal teacher, but they killed him, and he came back to life. Theophilus wants to be certain, and so he would have commissioned Luke, who was connected with, the, with him in some way, who was a medical doctor, who was a brilliant uh, scholar, a gifted writer, careful attention to detail, and he commissions Luke out to go and, and to spend a substantial season of his life investigating this Jesus of, of Nazareth, compiling things like uh, written and oral traditions. Uh, he would have interviewed eyewitnesses. He would have corroborated all the stories that he had uh, heard. He would have nailed down a timeline and put it together in an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, is what he says, uh, determining the truth and bringing it together in this published account, the gospel according to Luke. Now, today we get into the Christmas story, and and the Christmas story, the most popular portions of the Christmas story are distinct to Luke's gospel, and so it'll be a good time to to look at this together. Uh, The the first eyewitness that he gets into in his uh, account is this eyewitness, Zechariah. Zechariah is uh, a man from a, a small town uh, in Judea, he's just kind of this country pastor, small town kind of 
priest, he uh, goes into Jerusalem where he does this duty that he just landed on him by literally a a rolling of dice, casting of lots, and it lands on him. He goes into the temple. And if you remember, he goes into the temple and he sees this angel, one of the three angels named in the scriptures. He sees Gabriel, and Gabriel tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth, who is older and and barren, they will have a a child that they have been praying for 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 years and years and years and years. But it won't be just any child. It'll be the one who's been prophesied about from long, long ago. He's going to be great. He's going to be the forerunner to the anticipated Messiah. He is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And, and this week, we'll, we'll continue on with that. And we'll hear uh, an angel, Angel Gabriel, again, this time come to Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is a woman of God. We need to know that she is a woman of God. She's a, a tremendous example to us of faith and, and, and faithfulness. And, and Luke likely would have sat down with her in her old age and, and she would have given her account to Luke and he would have uh, written this out, corroborated her story to confirm that this was in fact true. Her story actually begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We have the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They turn from God, they turn to sin, and because of their sin, God declares his judgment on them but he doesn't stop there, does he? He could have said, I'm done with you. I said the day that you eat of the fruit, uh, you will surely die. But he declares his judgment. But he continues on and he also declares his coming salvation. Here's what he says uh, to the serpent, Satan, who tempted uh, Eve. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3.15, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heal. So God says, Satan, here's what's going to happen. The woman is going to hate you. Ladies, you can say amen to that, right? The the woman is going to hate you. And he says, Satan, you're going to receive a head wound, which would be a a fatal blow. God says, "I, I will crush you, Satan, sin, and death. And, and how will I, I do this? He says, by her offspring, by her lineage. Uh, a woman will come and, and she will deliver a child. And this child is going to be the one who will deliver this wound. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion, the, the first gospel, the first hint that Christ would come and he would defeat Satan, the serpent, sin, and death. And, and now how would this happen? And, and who is this woman? And, and who is this son? Well, God later speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Here's what he says, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, give that word to me, Emmanuel. He will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. That name is so beautiful. That God has come and God is with us. He has become one of us. You're not alone. He knows everything that you're going through. He's been tempted in every way as you are, yet he is without sin. Emmanuel, God with us. The God who comes into human history to crush the enemy doesn't just show up and do his business real quick and he's out of here. Instead, he enters in. He experiences everything that you experience in humanity. More info is is released on this woman. We find out about this woman that she 
will be a virgin. And so they wait and they study scriptures and they learn about Emmanuel and they anticipate the coming of this virgin woman. And then the, the very last page of the Old Testament comes. We looked at that uh, uh, last week. And we enter into 400 years of silence where they anticipate the coming of the forerunner. There's no prophet. There's no signs. There's no wonder. There, there's just a building up of anticipation for the forerunner. And then Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, Your old barren wife will be pregnant with the herald, with the forerunner, with the great one who will preach about this coming Emmanuel just before he comes. Now, Gabriel comes again here six months later. Chapter 1, 26 through 33. Let's read it together. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, in the sixth month, that would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we have another conception miracle that is foretold. Gabriel shows up to this small town of Nazareth, to the virgin, and the virgin's name is Mary. And this that we have here is her account throughout the book of Luke. Now, what does the angel Gabriel say to Mary? He says, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And how does Mary respond? She is troubled. She's afraid. Throughout the book of Luke, we get all these angel appearances, and people are freaking out. She's troubled. She's afraid. And she's particularly unsure of what does this even mean here, and what does the angel respond back to her? What does Gabriel say? He says, listen, don't be afraid. A common response back from the angels. You have no need to be afraid. This is good news that's coming at you. This is good news from the Lord. You have found favor with God. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to hear that in your lifetime? A lot of us say, God, am I pleasing you? I'm, I'm trying to live right. Very specific. You have found favor with God. You will have a child. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great because he is the son of God. He will have the throne of David that we talked about back in our series by the book on the life of Josiah. He's going to have the throne of David. He's going to be the king of Israel. And his kingdom will have no end. This is huge, huge news. The, the long-awaited son, Emmanuel, God with us. He's here. It, it's, it's time. And you, young lady, you are going to have this child. Now, what do we know about Mary from the, the passage? We'll get to her spiritual condition in, in just a few moments here, but, but we do learn uh, a couple of pieces of information about her life that will be really, really helpful for us. First, we learn that she is from Nazareth, and then we also learn that she is betrothed to be married. So let's start with uh, her being from Nazareth. Nazareth uh, was in that time just about as 
insignificant as any place could be. It's just kind of a, a, a no, no-name kind of place. Archaeological excavations will tell us that it was just this small, little, tiny agricultural town. Uh, just simple seed farmers. They would plant seeds so that people could then take the seedlings and saplings and, and, and plant them elsewhere. Just a, a little seed town, uh, maybe a few hundred people. And it's on the road between two cities, Sephoris and Samaria. And two cities that I personally travel a lot between is Boston and South Hadley, Massachusetts, where my in-laws live out in western Massachusetts. And just traveled from there uh, yesterday after coming back from, from Thanksgiving. And we were all the way out there. And for us, we hop on the Mass Pike and we head out there about an hour and a half. And uh, we always stop along the way at the Charlton Plaza. Some of you guys, you know that well. We stop along the way there. Uh, except yesterday, we had to stop like three other times on the side of the road uh, because my kids... Uh, couldn't hold it. And so we're, we're the guy, you know, the stream's going out the side of the window, and that's us. And uh, anyhow, because uh, my children have a bladder the size of a grain of rice. It's ridiculous. And they also enjoy the rumble strip. Any excuse that they can have for me to go on the rumble strip, they, they like that too. Anyhow, uh, we were trying to stop at the Charlton Plaza, and it just didn't happen. Uh, and the Charlton Plaza, that's Nazareth, right? It, it's kind of this small town. Uh, Charlton Plaza, I, I'm guessing there's a few hundred people there. And, you know, I don't really want to stop and hang out there for a long time. It's just kind of a, you're, you're passing through. That's Nazareth. It was the, 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 the town between the cities, right? You didn't really actually want to go there. It's just a stop along along the way. And in fact, John chapter 1, verse 46, listen to what Nathaniel says about Nazareth. He says, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So nobody really, you know, had any high hopes about Nazareth whatsoever. That's where Mary's from. She's kind of a nobody from nowhere. You know, her saga is not the saga shot in New York City. You like this, the urban movies, you know, city and they're you know, smooching on the top of the Empire State Building. You love those. But Nazareth, just kind of the middle of, of nowhere. That's her. We also know that she's from uh, Nazareth, but she's also betrothed to another man from Nazareth, and his name is Joseph. She's married, uh, or betrothed to be married to him. And, and, and this is the, the, the cultural norm of the day uh, called b- betrothal, which here's what, here's what betrothal uh, means. For them, in, in this tiny little town, their parents assuredly would have known each other. Uh, they, these, these families would have connected a little bit, got to know each other better, and, and said, okay, I have a son, Joseph. You have a daughter, Mary. Not a lot of options around here. And so let's just, it seems right, let's, let's have these two be married. They likely grew up together. It just, it just made sense. And the betrothal culture was such that they would pledge themselves to each other legally. It was, it was more than an, an engagement. It was a, a, a legal issue here. And if you were to break that betrothal, it would be the same as having a divorce. And so they would have a simple ceremony, and they would be joined together or betrothed, and it would be uh, commemorated with a sip of wine. And so they would have drank the wine, and they were officially be- betrothed. And they would be betrothed for one year, and then there would be the, the wedding ceremony, and then they would move in together, and then they would consummate the marriage, physical intimacy, and then would be able to start having kids Girls and, and boys were betrothed between the ages of 12 and 16. So, Mary is a middle school girl or early high school girl, and she's betrothed to be married. I could pic- picture her today, just a simple girl getting off the city bus or waiting at Forest Hills, maybe wearing her Dunkin' Donuts shirt. She's going to work or her part-time 
job. She's en route. She's heading out there. Just kind of a, just a simple local girl wearing simple attire, planning her wedding to this guy, Joseph. Just working class boy. He's, he's a carpenter learning under his father. Just simple, simple people. And, and for me, every Christmas, I am just so amazed and so encouraged at the Christmas story and how God chooses to come through simple people. Right? If I were God, good thing I'm not, I'd be going to some high and lofty people. But God says, I'm just going to go through some simple people. It tells us a whole lot about our God, doesn't it? It tells us that he, he, he cares for the people who are the nobodies. He cares for you. He cares for me. He knows your story. He knows your details. He knows the plight that you are in. And it speaks a lot about religion. See, religion is you work your way up to God. You perform. You earn his favor. You try to be good enough. You try to, to please him. It breeds self-righteousness. Because right? I'm so good. I've worked my way to God. God is pleased with me. But God, in the gospel, says, how about this? How about I come to you, and I meet you where you're at in your humble and lowly estate, even the humble and most insignificant among us. I will come and do that. It shows us that no one is beyond the reach of God. All throughout the scriptures, God is coming to humble and lowly people, doing amazing things through humble and lowly people, because that's our God. It shows a lot to us about his heart. No one is too far gone for God to come down and to get you and to work in your heart. No one is too significant. No one is overlooked by God. God sees you. And of all the people that he could have chosen, he chose Mary. It's a beautiful picture. Why did God choose Mary? It says, because you have found favor with God. And the favor doesn't tell us because of her behavior, because of anything that she's done. God just says, you. I picked you. He could have picked anybody. He says, I pick you. Because God can work through anybody. He can work through you too. Now, favor in the original language, just in case we have a tendency when we hear this story to say, see, she earned God's favor. She did it. She was good enough and God chose her. Favor in the original language is the, the word charis. I have a friend who named their daughter charis. You know what that literally means? Grace, which is unmerited favor. And so Mary's favor is a picture of God placing favor on somebody, not because they earned it, but because God chooses to freely give it. We don't work our way up to God. That is not the Christian faith. That's what sets us apart from every other religion out there. It's not about how you perform. It's that Jesus performed for you. We do not deserve it, but he is good and gracious to us. And this loving, gracious invitation is extended to every single one of us in this room today. Should you respond to Jesus, you might be made right with God. Now, let's read on. Look at verses 34 through 38. Amazing news. You're going to have a child. Doesn't make any sense. Not by natural relations. And Mary says to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Love this. Amazing news. And Mary asks a clarifying question. She says in verse 34, she says, How is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. Now, you may be thinking, based on our story last week, well, wait a second, okay. Zechariah asked a question last week, and the angel said, you will shut up now, and, and, and makes him mute throughout the rest of his wife's pregnancy. But Mary asked a question, and there's no such consequence. Well, if you look carefully at the language here, it's very important to note that Zechariah asks his question after praying for years, and, and he says, here's what's going to happen. He asks his question out of unbelief. God answers his prayer. He asks for a sign. He asks for proof. Well, I'm not really going to believe until you show me something. Mary, on the other hand, asks out of belief, just a need for clarification. She says, okay, how will this work? So how will this work? Like, I know this is going to happen. I believe you. But what's that going to look, how's that actually going to happen? Because I am a, a virgin. And God tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, I want to make sure that we understand the theological significance of the need for the Holy Spirit to come upon her. Since uh, the sin of Adam and Eve and and sin entered into the world, uh, sin nature or sinful disposition has been passed down through the man generation after generation into all of humanity. But since Jesus was conceived miraculously without a man, he is fully man in flesh, but without a, a sin nature. And so John himself, as we began to look at last week, John the baptizer, he was a miraculous uh, conception as well. But later, after Zechariah leaves from the temple, he and Elizabeth would have natural relationships, and despite their old age, they would conceive. Mary and Joseph, that's not how it happened. She was a virgin, and so the sin nature was not passed on. Do we get that? That's, that's really important uh, theologically to get. And so Gabriel explains to Mary, here's how it's going to happen. He says, he says, first of all, I, I, I want you to know that, that your, uh, your barren cousin Elizabeth, the one who was called barren, she is also conceiving by a miracle of God. Because what? It's because nothing is impossible with God. I love that statement. Isn't that a huge statement? I've heard whole sermons preached on that statement alone, that nothing is impossible with God. So listen, when something comes into your life and you say that is impossible or, or, or you read something in the scripture or, 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 or you feel like God is leading you to do something. You say it's just impossible. It couldn't, couldn't happen. The question is never, is it possible? The question is, do you believe in God or not? Because I mean, by the very nature of God being God, if he is God, then anything is possible, right? So the question is not, is it possible? We don't ask that question. We ask, is there a God? Do I have reason to believe that there is a God? And if there is, nothing is impossible with him. He says, so nothing is impossible with God. Your relative is a child, and you are now going to have a child by an amazing miracle of God. Now, for Mary, this is huge stuff happening here, right? Imagine, you're a middle school girl. That's a lot to take in as a middle school Girl, it's exciting. It's amazing. I'm going to have the Christ, the Messiah. I am the prophesied virgin from long ago. What a, a privilege, right? 
It's an amazing privilege. It's a lot to take in, but it's an amazing privilege. And and here's where I want to kind of turn the corner and start to to, to take some personal application for every single one of us out of this, beyond just the amazing application that Jesus Christ himself has come for us. I want to take some personal application out of this for us. And and, and here's, here's kind of where I want to go with it. First of all, this is an amazing, amazing act of grace for Mary, from God for Mary. But at the same time, don't miss this. This is an incredible challenge as well. It's incredible grace, but an incredible challenge. A lot of times we get lost in the, the glitz and the glamour of the golden nativity scenes or Mary with the halo around her, her head. But let me remind you of some of the realities of the challenges that this girl would have to face. Imagine one day you're a middle school girl, the next day you're pregnant. That's huge. <laughs> the next day you're, you're pregnant. Imagine you're moving from planning your, your wedding to planning parenting, right? Imagine you would have to tell y- y- your parents as a middle school girl that you're pregnant and you're not going to believe me, but as a kid, I was afraid to tell my parents that I got detention right? or that I got a C. But as a kid, imagine telling your parents, I'm pregnant. She would have to also tell Joseph, I'm pregnant. But before you say anything, it's a miracle, right? Can, I just, it's amazing. Matthew chapter 1 tells us Joseph's side of the story. It says that he didn't believe her at first, that he, he, he assumed, obviously, that she had been unfaithful to, to him. Uh, Matthew tells us that Joseph planned to divorce her uh, in that culture. Uh, she could have been stoned to death in that culture. Uh, they could have put dirty rags on her and humiliated her, physically uh, beat her before others, making a lesson of her. That was in that culture of that day. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Joseph was a man of God. Joseph had compassion, though he didn't believe her. He did not want to, to, to shame her. And so he said in his heart that he would divorce her quietly, send her away quietly until an angel appeared to him as well and explain the prophecies, and explain the miracle that had happened. And Joseph does what? He marries her very quickly. But the townspeople certainly did not believe the whole situation. We can know that because as Jesus grows up, we read in the Bible people saying things to Jesus like, at least we know who our daddy is. Right? It's crazy. Right? So we know the townspeople didn't believe this story that Mary has been sharing. They didn't believe it. And so she would have had the stigma upon her. Can you imagine the stigma upon a girl in a culture that would stone a girl? That would put filthy rags on her and seek to humiliate her? People probably saying things like, Mary, do you really believe that God and this prophecy would come to Nazareth? I mean, they understood how insignificant where they lived was. Nice try. Tell us the truth. You little fill in the blank. I want us to understand that it's much more raw than we tend to think as we read these cute children stories. It would have been incredibly, incredibly difficult. Now, in light of those realities, how does Mary respond? Look at verse 38. She says, 
Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's an amazing response. So beautiful. This is going to be hard, but my life is not my own. I am here as a servant of the Lord. What if we all endured life challenges this way? What if that's how we responded to the challenges that come our way? God, I trust you, and if this is for your glory, amen. God, I'm I'm your servant. I will do, I will endure whatever it takes. It's a powerful example from this woman. The Bible never calls us to venerate Mary, to pray to Mary, to, to worship Mary in any way. That is completely opposed to Scripture. There is one mediator between God and man, and he is Christ Jesus. But what Protestants tend to do is so backlash from that false teaching that we just want to kind of suppress Mary as, eh. She was an amazing woman of God, a powerful example of faithfulness, and we need to learn from her. If every single one of us endured life's challenges like this woman did, wow, what a difference we could make. What an impact we could make. What glory could we bring to, to, to God? And every single one of us have some challenges among us right now in our lives. I could, I could say, here's a microphone. Go for it. And we could sit here for hours and talk about the challenges that we're in, the, the uncertainties that are before us, the, the pain that we're, we're, we're feeling. We all have challenges in front of us right now. But, but I want you to hear this. This is, this is huge, and this is what I want you to leave with today. Listen, with every challenge, you will choose to focus on the pain or the privilege. Say that one more time. With every challenge, you will choose to focus on the pain or the privilege. And which one was it for Mary? It was the privilege. She saw how huge of a privilege it was that she would be carrying the long-awaited Messiah. And that's where her mind went. Her mind went straight to the privilege. As you read on in the chapter, the the chapter we'll see next week, uh, she, she starts to sing a song that she wrote about the Lord, about this great privilege that I get to carry the, the Messiah. She could have easily let her mind go to not the, the privilege, but to the painful circumstances that she would now find herself in, right? But she goes straight to the privilege that is before her, that I get to serve the Lord. I get to carry the Messiah. And so this is where I have to take it and point it on my own heart, and where you have to take it and point it at your own heart, is where would your mind have gone? Would your mind have gone to the privilege or would your mind have gone to the, the pain? We can easily let our minds go to places like this hurts emotionally. This hurts physically. This is humiliating before my family. This is humiliating before my friends. This is going to cost me or this is frustrating or this is a relational stressor or, or, or this demands extra work and a lot, a lot of hard work on, on my part. We, we could easily let our minds and our, our circumstances focus in on the pain or we could shift our minds towards the privilege of what is before us. 
And now this is where many of you are thinking, okay, I get that it's a privilege for Mary. She will be called blessed. She's the blessed one. She gets to carry the Messiah. But for me, there's really no privilege in this. And whatever circumstance that you're facing right now, there is, though. There is. Let me read to you Acts chapter 5, 40 through 42. Listen to what it says. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So what happened to these apostles before the council? They got beat. They straight up got beat. And what did they focus on? What a privilege. (laughs) We ever got beat up and said, thank you, that was such an honor. (laughs) What a privilege that I get to suffer for the name of, of Jesus. What a privilege that I get to be somehow associated, somehow co- connected to Jesus. What a privilege that much will be made of Jesus because of my life. And the same went f- for Mary. She looked at the privilege And really the privilege wasn't what was in it for her, what she got out of it. The privilege was in that she got to participate in the glory of the Lord and the glory of Jesus. See, Mary made a life-altering conclusion that I think we all have to make. I I challenge you, we have to make this. Here it is, verse 38. The, The conclusion is this. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. That my life is about serving the Lord. That was her conclusion, and it changed everything. As you walk throughout the the New Testament, people all throughout the New Testament make this conclusion. Paul, uh, the apostle, opens up his his epistles, his letters, Romans, Philemon, uh, Titus, with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Also, James and 2 Peter and Jude open up with, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I'm a servant of Jesus, and and I'm a servant of Jesus. Is that how we see our lives? Or do we simply see our lives as, I'm a benefactor of Jesus? What does Jesus give me? Jesus, give me this. Jesus, give me that. Jesus, Jesus, I want this. Grace, give me, give me. Or do we say, yes, that's beautiful, it's amazing. Now, I am a servant of Jesus. I'm indebted to him. I didn't earn it, but I want to live a life that honors him. I am for him. My life is about Jesus. Is your life about Jesus or is it about something else? Is it about serving Jesus solely in whatever you do? I'm a servant of Jesus. James and Jude too. And Mary. Family members. James and Jude were, were, were brothers of Jesus, by the way. Any, any older siblings in here? You're an older sibling? I am. I have two, two younger siblings. You ever played the game Slave with your, your sibling? <laughs> That's just what I called it. Want to play Slave? <laughs> in other words, you're my slave. I did that all the time with my, my younger siblings. Okay, so, and this, it worked, you know, until about age five, and then they caught on. But 
do you want to be my slave for the day? <laughs> yeah! Okay, so I'm thirsty. Go give me some apple juice, right? And they just, I just was their taskmaster all day. It was, it was a beautiful thing. These brothers willingly say, we are servants. We are slaves to big brother Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean, he would have to, in fact, be God. He would have to, in fact, have risen from the dead for history to tell us that these brothers would say that and then go on to, to even die for their brother. It's amazing, right? But they say, I am a servant of the Lord. I'm a servant of the, the Lord. His mother says, I'm a servant of the Lord, that is what I do. And listen, when we make that conclusion in the depths of our souls, everything changes, doesn't it? Have you made that conclusion? I mean, really made that conclusion in the depths of your soul. That I am a servant of the Lord. That's why I'm here. And when you get there, I mean, you really get there in your heart, any pain is going to be overshadowed by the privilege that I get to serve Jesus. And I revel in the fact that God is working all this craziness out in my life for his glory. This weekend I watched uh, one of those reports on the man who killed Osama bin Laden. And pretty interesting stuff. And uh, he said that he and all of SEAL Team 6 were convinced that they were going in and they were going to die. They said, we didn't even think we were going to make it. We just, we knew we were going to die. We were going to die trying to take them out, but we were going to die. And so they call all their people. And he said, I called my family. I called my father, said my goodbyes. And I was going to die. Fully aware of that. Now, he obviously didn't, but he was fully believing that. But he said in the midst of it, it wasn't a big deal because I was so excited about the privilege to be in there and to take him out and to serve my country. It was abundantly clear that for this guy, it was a privilege to end the war, to, to, to serve his country, to be a part of an amazing historical moment. And for us, Listen, the Bible is abundantly clear that your pain is for the glory of God. And so you should have a heart transformation where God starts to turn your heart to where you say pain is way overshadowed by the fact that God is doing something for his glory. He's going to use this in the trajectory of salvation history for his glory to serve other people. doesn't matter how painful it is, he's going to use it. I'm praying that we leave with that. So you know what? It's going to be hard. Life is hard. But God is working things out for his glory. Somehow he's turning this for his glory. And I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I want to be a servant of God. And God, that's, that's what I'm about. That's what my life is for. It's for your glory to serve you and serve your purposes. Now, by God's goodness to us, there's also one other thing that's abundantly clear in the scripture. And that is, not only is he using your pain for his glory, but he's also using your pain for your good. He's using it for your good. 
because the scriptures will tell us God is working all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purposes. So there's that being called according to what he's trying to do, but he's also working at the same time for your good. He's going to turn this for your good as well. And only God and his perfect sovereignty and his perfect providence can work things together such that somehow they come out to glorify him and they're good for you as well. Time and time again, I, I'm in the midst of a circumstance and I say, there, this is a crappy situation. This is so bad. And then months or years later, I look back and I say, <laughs> I could have never thought about that. I could have never in my own mind worked that together, how he did that, but he did it. And he was glorified through it and somehow I'm better. My family's better. My marriage is better. My church is better. My friendships are better because of that. And I could have never, never orchestrated that on my own. But God loves to do that. His glory and your good. And so with that in mind, how are we going to view the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Very painful. I'm not trying to minimize that. Very painful circumstances many of us are in. But are you going to focus on the pain get bogged down in the pain? Are you going to focus on the privilege that you get to be a part of what God is up to? Somehow he's going to turn this for his good and his glory and also for your good. It's a great, great gift that we have from God that we can know these things and we can see them time and time again throughout the scriptures, throughout our lives and throughout the lives of those around us who are called according to God's purposes. And so let me pray for you. Let me pray that God would give you that sense of his goodness and his grace, that he would change your mindset. Go ahead and close your eyes, and, and I'm going to pray for you. And pray that God would change our mindsets. Pray that some of you, for the very first time, would, in fact, become a servant of Christ. That you would enter into that relationship with him that he has given you by a gift of his grace. And now you get to be on mission with him. Let me pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this truth that we see in the life of Mary. We see in the life of Zechariah. We see all throughout the scriptures and we've seen time and time again in our life. And that is that you are working things out for your glory. You want to use us if we would be servants of you for your glory, for your purposes. But at the same time, you're working it out for our good. And so God, would you give us a change of our mindset that we wouldn't be a people that focus solely on the painful circumstance that we're in, but that you would help us to to be carried outside of that and we would be able to see and to sense and to know with full confidence and assurance that you are doing something and that we don't have to see the end of the story, but we know in faith and we trust that you're doing something good. And so I commit to you, my friends in this room who are feeling great pain. May you be near to them in this pain. And may they have great hope that you are doing a good work. For your kingdom and in their lives individually. And God, if there's anybody in this room who has never given their hearts fully over to Christ Jesus and said, I want to follow you. I want to turn from sin and trust in you. I want to receive grace. You have done for me what I can never do for myself by living perfectly and dying a death of a sinner in my place on the cross. Lord, I pray that they would trust in that. They would be forever your servant. 
commit them to you, God. Lord, as we respond in song, be glorified. As we leave this place, be glorified. We sit here and we say we're yours. Thank you for our time. In Jesus' name, amen.